Hey gang, thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of The Hustle. So let me explain what this is. Now, obviously the whole motivation for this podcast is to find out how artists maintain careers in music over the long haul. How do they pay their bills? And up to this point, obviously, we've mostly spoken with musicians and we've learned how they have done that. Well, I thought it might be interesting to learn what a working stiff like you and me, a regular Joe, who has also made a career on the business side of music, how they have done that over the long haul. So this is a conversation I had recently with my friend Jackie Clary. Now, Jackie has worked in the music industry for 20 years, and that time has included stops at MTV, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and where she's worked for the last few years, a music archiving company called Reelin' in the Years. Now, I don't know anybody else who could give us firsthand experience of what it's like to work at MTV in the Rock Hall, and I assumed you didn't either. So I thought it might be interesting to learn what that life is like. How do you pay your bills? What what are the other people like? What's the environment like? What kind of things are you assigned to do? Is it difficult? Is there a party atmosphere? Those are the kind of things I thought that might be interesting to learn. So I hope you guys think this is interesting. If you do, tell me and maybe we'll do more of these. Just find out what it's like sort of on the periphery, you know, the actual business side of the music business. And we're going to, like we did with Stephen Thomas Erlewine, we're going to, we're going to sprinkle in five of her favorite songs throughout the interview. And this is one of them, I'm Your Man by Wham. And she explains it here in a minute. Now, I have to tell you, I was really sick a couple of weeks ago. And I did four or five interviews during that time. So if I sound as if my energy level is a little low, that's why. Uh, I don't actually think that it was low, but it may sound that way. Especially because I had to be very careful that I didn't laugh. Because if I laughed it would just send me off into this coughing fit. And so we edited most of those fits out of here. But if I sound a little reserved, that's why. It's because if I laughed or, you know, joked around or whatever, I was going to just start coughing and hacking. And so I feel kind of bad about that because Jackie's great. So anyway, hope you enjoy this conversation. Let me know what you think. She called me from her home in San Diego. So for starters, since um, the first pick of yours is going to be playing during my intro and into this what would be your first song well my first pick is i'm your man by wham what really oh yeah <laughs> nice i gotta be careful i don't laugh too hard or else i'm gonna cough hey. uh, okay but i would say you're you're welcome to laugh because if i say things that are unusual or funny or not, i will not, laugh not what your usual guests would pick <laughs> no that's great i'm afraid if i laugh too hard i'm gonna cough all over you so, I, uh, so wham, that's a beautiful pick. Why this one? Well, I'm a huge George Michael fan, and okay. I've been a George Michael fan ever since I was a Wham fan uh, in 1984. And I could, I could give you a list of 15 George Michael and Wham songs, but as George says on Unplugged in 96, this is the one Wham track of the evening. Mm. And um, I pick I'm Your Man, and I've several favorite George and Wham songs, as everybody always says, their favorite artists. But I pick I'm Your Man for the joy of I'm Your Man. Because mm. I'm Your Man has such joy. And yeah. I love that. And that's what I love about pop music. That's what I hope I am all about in my life. I hope I show that to my friends and kids. I mm-hmm. hope it's what I love about Wham, and um, one of the things I loved about George. So I pick I'm Your Man because of the joy of That's I'm Your great. Man. That's a great, great song and a great reasoning for it, too. Yeah, I just 
the other day watched the George Michael movie Freedom. It was oh, on yeah. Showtime. Have you? I take it you've seen this movie. <laughs> Not only have I seen it, but before it premiered on Showtime, you know, it aired in the U.K., yeah. and as it was airing in the U.K., I was standing in a Starbucks waiting for my son who was at swim mm-hmm. practice um, mm-hmm. using their Wi-Fi and on the George Michael fan pages, and no an way. awesome fan in England recorded it on their iPhone (laughs) and posted it to a fan page. So I got to watch it in chunks. By the time I actually saw the doc air here, I had seen almost all of it. But, um, oh, yeah, fantastic. Nice. Yeah, I really really liked it. And for the first time, it it brought home why his relationship with Anselmo was such a, like, life changer for him. Because, you know, they talk about that. That's always brought up as kind of the the um, fork in the road where his life sort of went, you know, a completely different direction. And I've always thought, well, people, you know, people are in relationships all the time. You Sometimes they go bad and then you bounce back. Why is this one so specific and why is it so meaningful? But I And I came away finally understanding why that would be for him. Yeah, well, what I liked about the documentary, too, is, you know, originally, it, um, from what I understand, it was supposed to focus really just specifically on kind of the time after Wham! Faith into Listen Without Prejudice, because it was originally supposed to coincide with the re-release or the anniversary release of Listen Without Prejudice, which is why when you watch it, mm-hmm. it seems to kind of like do the last 15 years really fast. You know, it's, kind of Yeah, like, and I noticed that it... <laughs> It it really emphasizes Listen Without Prejudice. It goes deep on like four or five of the songs on Well, and that's what everybody's talking about. That's what yeah. James Corden and Elton John yeah. and everybody was talking about. And as a fan, what I love about stuff like that and what I was most excited about um, was to see footage I hadn't seen. I mean, I've worked in music 20 years now, and I work in an archive for heaven's sakes. But for me, the holy grail is I have never seen Wham! The Final. Oh, really? Seen it. Yeah, because it, it was broadcast live. It was recorded. Yeah. You know it exists. Yeah. I have never seen it. I've seen bits wow. and pieces on YouTube, there, and there was a little bit wow. in, in Freedom, and I was, like, yeah. you know, texting my George Michael friend fan, fan <laughs> friends, and, you know, and I was like, the final footage, look at that. Right. That. They're like, yeah, no we thought way. of you when we saw that. Yeah. Oh, that's so, great. As a fan, and I think a lot of fans often feel this when they watch pieces on artists they know a lot about, a genre of music I know a lot about. Um, that's how I feel, where I'm like, oh, show me something I haven't seen. Tell mm-hmm. me something I don't know. Yeah. And if you can do that, then I think it's great. And that documentary most definitely did it. That's a good one. I, I, will, I should say, for uh, Andrew Ridgely would be near the top of my dream interviews, <sighs> by the way. More, I would much rather talk to Andrew Ridgely than even George if he were still alive. Because I just want to know, what it's, what it's like to be Andrew Ridgely, you know? I just yeah. don't know what that guy thinks about and does every day. I'm sure yeah. he lives off Careless Whisper royalties or whatever, but... And well, I heard recently that I think sure he's helps. separating from one of the Bananarama girls. Oh, They've been married for like 30 that. years. I, actually, I don't I I believe they were actually officially ever married. I thought oh, they were really? just... Yeah, and now oh, I could be wrong, like but I thought they... a civil partnership or whatever Yeah, for a long time, kids together and everything. 
Yeah, man, I love Andrew. Of course I love yeah. Andrew. And it's funny, you know, every year on his birthday, which is January 26th, I always post something oh my on my God. Facebook page. Oh and people are like, of course you know Andrew's birthday. I'm yeah. like, of course I know Andrew's birthday. Wow. Yeah, no, I, um, I've um, i always loved and respected and appreciated him. And certainly uh-huh. when George died and uh, following him and, and seeing his words and the things he talked about, it was, yeah, I think he's pretty spectacular. All right, well, so let's get into you. Where did you grow up, and was your life ambition always to work in music? Uh, So I grew up in Irvine, California, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. in Orange County. My folks still live there, so um, I currently live in San Diego, but I I do get up to Irvine pretty often, still have Mm -hmm. friends and family there. But, um, no, actually, um, my life's ambition when I was growing up was to be on TV, to work in news. Mm, so mm-hmm. not not necessarily be on TV, but to work in TV. But I was a big news watcher. So that was mm. actually my career ambition. But I was a huge pop music fan. Yeah, that's funny. That was my career so, ambition, too. I can't remember if I already told you this. When I was growing up, I wanted to be John Pesh, which sounds uh, really weird. But he was the host of Entertainment Tonight. Entertainment Tonight, yeah. <laughs> and back then, that show was more of like a legit news show. You know, it just right. covered... Entertainment. entertainment news, and yeah. he seemed so he seemed so not showbiz you know like he was not right. he was just this is a job to him and he was taking it kind of seriously he didn't seem to he seemed to almost be sort of laughing or winking at right. you know entertainment <laughs> or whatever and i just thought that's the guy that i want to be i want to be him because he's making this serious you know well, or he's by, taking it seriously right by the time i got to high school i had it figured out i wanted to be tabitha soren Oh, you! Oh, smart. Yes. So okay. I had it figured out. So there was the news, there was the music, but it was really the youth audience that mm-hmm. I really liked too. Mm-hmm. And I liked that she did, you know, the political stuff. Obviously, I watched mm-hmm. her interview Bill Clinton and all that kind of thing. But she did music too, you know, and mm-hmm. I loved that. So by the time I got to high school, um, I think if you had asked me when I was in like elementary and junior high. I was more on the Jane Pauley route, mm-hmm. but then in high school, I was more on the Tabitha Soren route, which was kind of cool. Then I did actually work with her while I was at MTV, yeah. so that was kind yeah. of the, oh, my gosh, I'm 23, and I'm doing what I had That's wanted to amazing. do, and okay. she was just as cool as I'd hoped really? she would be. Oh, yeah. So, um, wow. So when I was in high school, that was what I wanted to do. Now, music, music was always important to me, and... Um, it's funny, my kids are now the age that I was when I was getting into music and really mm-hmm. into it. And mm-hmm. um, I look at them and I, I'll pull out my reference book. I'll be like, what was number one when I was exactly your age? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had... So beginning in 84, when I was nine years old, mm-hmm. is really, to me, the beginning of my love of music. Um, I mean, I remember getting, I remember a few things prior to that, um, but also for me, like a lot of girls I danced you know I did the ballet I did the jazz and I credit a lot of my dancing for my love of pop music really because I would show up at dance class two or three times a week and you know I would hear Ghostbusters and I would Mm -hmm. hear Pin Almost Fire and you know and so that I I credit a lot of that so by the time I got to college um, I certainly was a big music fan and um, knew my stuff pretty well and enjoyed it and exchange tapes with friends and all that kind of stuff. But the career ambition was news. And so I went to Syracuse University and Mm. I went to the Newhouse School. 
and majored in broadcast journalism. Okay. And so out of SU, uh, I got a job with ABC News One, which was um, which is the affiliate feed service for ABC News. Okay. So um, the kind of cool thing about that, well, there's a lot of cool things about that. I had always, well, I figured out in college, actually, that um, I really wanted to be a producer, that mm. I really liked the role of the news producer in shaping the program, shaping the pieces, shaping the ideas. And so... Did you see broadcast news? And that oh, movie yeah. was the one that told well, you that this is what you wanted with your I life? I wanted to be Holly Hunter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, right before I started, the first time I saw broadcast news was the week before I started at SU because we had a list of assignments. And uh, there were three movies we had to see. And it's funny. I remember two, but I don't remember three. It was broadcast news, the player, and something else. Mm, oh, you know what? Kane? No, you know what I think it was? I think it was what? network. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think it was network. And yeah. so we had to watch those. And then we had to, like, read some magazines, and it was all different kinds of media. It wasn't just news. But, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I was like, oh, dude, I want yeah. to do that. Yeah, so, it's still um, my favorite movie of all time. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's one of mine. So yeah. I actually had the poster up in my dorm room. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I so, um, my, co- my cough drop. No, oh, sorry. Know. That's okay. Make I'm you trying not to laugh too hard. Broadcast news reference. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, All right. Out of, so, so I got news, the job. ABC. Yeah. So I got yeah. the job at ABC. Well, I interned for them while I was in college, and um, I always wanted to go national too, which was um, not the usual route for kids like me. It was usually go to a middle market, you know, produce there, work your way up. And I really, I wanted to go national, and I was lucky that I. Um, had the opportunity to intern in New York City and then got the job. They hired me straight out of college, started working in News One. Cool thing about that, too, is it was my first experience with an archive. And mm. archive has come to define my career, which is kind right. of, you know, not what I imagined, but, man, I love it. And yeah. I've always been a collector, and I've always loved to organize stuff and that kind of thing. So being at News One and kind of beginning to learn about that and mm-hmm. – doing it on a daily basis and um so what we would do is have and it's all different now with digital and computers and such but we would put um clips up on a satellite for local affiliates to use in their newscasts right okay so that was what we would do and so i worked for news one straight out of college met some really fantastic people really supportive people learned a lot about the news business um but i still had that nagging like i've always wanted to work at mtv news Mm-hmm. And um, so it was still kind of in the back of my head. And so I'm asking around, who do I know? And turns out that a classmate of mine at Syracuse um, was in the news and specials department at MTV. Oh, no way. And so I got on the phone with her, and she said, okay, but you know how it works is we hire our interns. Uh. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm mm-hmm. working full time. Yeah. And um, she's like, well, can you intern two days a week? And so for mm. about four months, I worked seven days a week. No way. The folks at ABC were super awesome, and they rearranged my schedule. I worked Saturday to Thursday, or oh, Saturday, wow. Saturday to Wednesday, and then I interned. So I worked for free as a PA uh-huh. at MTV News Thursday and Friday. 
And it was for free. They don't. And it was for free. That was no. They do not pay. Well, and again, I'm talking about 1997. Sure. So everything I say about my experience is certainly in the context of my own experience. I have no idea what they do these days. And how were you? I mean, they're in New York City. And how are you living in New York City with a unpaid internship? Well, I I know you have a full time job. Yeah, but is that are you still okay? So that you're able to. Hold to pay your rent or whatever it is. Well, because first of a full time job. I wasn't living in New York City. <laughs> oh, okay. That helps. I was right. living in Hoboken, New Jersey. Ah. Which at the time was cheaper than living in New York City. It is not anymore from what oh, I hear. Wow. And for okay. my friends who are still there and it's very hip. It was hip at the time, but it was like mm-hmm. rough hip and now I think it's just hip hip. So at the time, um yeah, I was living in Hoboken and I wasn't the only one, you know, and I actually chose to move there. I you know, new house kids who had gone before me had recommended that. Um, I have roommates, and I had parental help. Yeah. So, okay. and I am very lucky that I had that. I know mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't have that option. Um, mm-hmm. I was working my butt off, but I sure. did have some financial help. Right. I I did that for seven days straight, seven days a week straight for about four months. Wow. Which, oh, man, wouldn't recommend that to a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, we just totally burned out. I'm pretty sick by the time I hit Thanksgiving, but it it did what I'd hoped it would do, and it got me a job offer at, at MTV. That's incredible. Special. Okay. So and your, friend is, your friend is the gateway to you getting that internship. I knew somebody. And then somebody. I assume you proved, so you proved yourself during right. the internship, and they hired you full-time. That's what happened. Okay. Well, okay, they hired me, but um, a lot of the staff at the time, and again, I'm speaking only to my personal experience, not what's mm-hmm. going on now, freelance. Uh, what? So they hired me for a gig, and okay. a lot of the PAs and the APs, production assistants and associate producers, in mm-hmm. my department were freelance. There were a few people who were staff positions, mm-hmm. but usually if you got in and got a PA gig and did well and made yourself useful, mm-hmm. you could go from gig to gig to gig, which is what I did for two years, uh, just about mm, – yeah, that was about a year and a half, just under okay. two years at MTV. As I would finish one show just as another show was staffing up. And when, as I was finishing one, I'd start to ask around, hey, who's staffing up? I'm going to be done with yeah. this one, you know, at the end of April. And you kind of you ask around and people will, hey, you know, we hear you're going to be available. We got this show opening up. So that was how I did it for, wow. for a while. Um, so, yeah, so I was there from – Including my internship, I was there just a little under two years. But my time at MTV was was pretty fantastic. I mean, I um, uh, my third show there, so my second paid one, I worked with Tabitha Thorne. And mm. that was what I had. And it, it was actually toward the end of her time at MTV. But that was full circle for me. That was yeah. what I had been there to do. And I also, I think, got very lucky. I wound up in the department I wanted to be in. I was in the news really? and specials department. Nice. Yeah. So I got to MTV right as True Life was starting, which mm-hmm. is still on the air. And so, mm-hmm. and the news and specials department turned into the docs department. Ooh, but, wow. um, yeah, so I got there right as True Life was starting and worked on a few of the beginning True Life. So I worked on, the first one I worked on was True Life, She's a Player, which is all about women athletes oh. and was great. Good. 
It was so cool. cool. And then I and I worked. And what, when you say so worked much. on them, what did you do? So I was the production assistant on that. Okay. And that was a there was a producer who was 26, oh. an associate producer who gosh how old must have been 24, 23, and then mm-hmm. I was 22, and then 23. So there were the three of us, and then of course uh, you know had the executive producer to report to, and then the support mm-hmm. staff and all that kind of thing. But what was so great, particularly about that show, is the two women I worked with, um, Allison and Danielle, were so great and taught me so much. And I learned so quick about how they put shows together there mm. and how to score them. Because mm. that was something that made, I think still does, makes programming for MTV and VH1, you know, so great was the incorporation mm-hmm. of the music into right. what you're watching. And so learning how to score a show and learning how to put it together and, you know, how to come up with characters that we should, who should we find to interview this? Who, you know, what are your ideas? And it was a really great, you know, learning experience right off the bat on how you do this. And then I went wow. from that show into True Life, I'm a Porn Star. Yeah, that's the one you were telling me about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and that's the one I worked on with Tabitha Soren. Okay. And learned, obviously, a lot from that. And that was also an experience. It's not um, a topic I knew a lot about, uh-huh. had had a lot of interest in even. But, you know, you you take what's available. And, and, you know, the idea was interesting. The idea was, you know, what did these people do and how do they make their living? And sure. so that's what I, you know, so that was the show that needed me. And I took the job and um, and I learned a lot about how to pick porn. shots from a porn. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Didn't you tell porn. me that you had to watch like hours of porn to like learn this kind of stuff? I mean, well, I had through to, it all. I had to pick shots that we could air on MTV. Mm. Okay. So yeah, and you know, as I'm calling home to California and telling my dad about this, and he's oh, like, boy. "This is what we sent you to Newhouse." Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Oh my gosh. So, but it, you know, I, I look back at experience and you know i'm glad i had it you know and i think it's one of those things that you learn pretty quick in your professional life you're not always going to do things that are you know what you thought you were going to do or totally in your wheelhouse i mean and so yeah and there were times where watching the stuff made me sick (laughs) but i do think that the documentary um was good and i think the story was well told and i you know and i did meet some very interesting people (laughs) i bet you did yeah, and talk okay. to some interesting people on the phone because I would talk to a lot of the folks in the – I would do the, some of the pre-interviews and then continue the relationships just putting the show together. And so I'd talk to them at work. And, yeah, it was mm. it, okay. it was a really interesting experience. And then from there I went on to do other, you know, other programs at MTV, although I did toward the end of that particular year say to – one of the women that was staffing up the shows, I'm like, okay, this was fun, but can you please promise me my next show, No Naked People? Right, right. no kidding. Yeah, and then I got put on MTV Spring Break Uncensored. Ah, well, <laughs> it's a different different angle on Naked yeah. People, isn't it? Right, yeah. but the cool thing about Spring Break Uncensored, so yeah, they're, they were slightly more clad than the porn show, but um, we did this really great, the producer of that show was a really cool guy, and um, did this really great mega mix 
where oh. we did like three or four seconds of every live performance that had ever been done at spring break from 86 to 99. Ooh. So, yeah, so that where I'm like, ooh, sign me up to help on that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I certainly enjoyed that very yeah. much. And then there's okay, the – yeah, there's the music part flipping over. And, you know, what was really cool is that was an archival show. So that was pulling out of the MTV mm-hmm. archive a ton of spring break shows. They went on to do, you know, several of those great uncensored shows. Like they did yeah. um, an MTV uncensored. They did a TRL uncensored. Like those are super cool. So yeah. I was glad that I, I got to work on that. But I did think it was funny where I requested no naked people. And they're like, okay, Jackie, yeah. this time they're wearing bikinis. Right, right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, still making you do it. Okay, so I have a number of questions I want to ask. These are kind of probably nitpicky specific ones, but just relating to the life of, of working there. Are you still living in Hoboken at this time? Um, while I was working at MTV? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And when the, when you're hired on as a freelancer like that, is it by the hour? Is it? I know it was, you didn't want to get specifics on numbers. We don't have to, but I am curious how you, you know, what do they, we're going to pay you, $2,000 for this project and it's going to take two months or whatever no, it is. I'm, I'm throwing it, all that out there. It was daily. They paid daily. Daily. Okay. Daily. Okay. So you did that and the, I, I'm guessing that plus the parental help and they, they probably didn't pay as well as the news station did. Even no. And I bet the news station, news station didn't pay that well either because a life in communications just doesn't pay that well. Well, you know, working for ABC, it was fine like i don't remember many of the specifics of um of how I, what i was paid at abc other than you know between that and my folks and my savings account and right. mac and cheese like i yeah. was good you yeah. know yeah, yeah. okay cuz the, the reason i i emphasize this is because i think for normal people i want to kind of lay out what the stakes are if you you know i what kid didn't grow up thinking working somewhere like mtv would just be amazing but if you're practically minded like I would have been when I was a kid, it was like, well, I don't, they don't pay. I can't afford to live in New York. I don't know anyone there. I don't know how I would ever do that. And so I'm kind of laying out the steps of you can do it. You have to be willing to sacrifice some things and put up with some things. And yeah, and I, I do think it, particularly in this day and age with access through Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of thing that you can try and, and figure out who the people you need to get to know when the right places are, you know. So I, I don't think that has changed in the sense, I think in any industry that you're in, you know, the best jobs are never posted on, uh, you know, online sure. anyway. I mean, you you build a career, you get the in by the people you know. Okay, sure. I don't know the people in the right places. All right, got to go make some friends, Yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. I mean, luckily yep. – I went to a university that all of us kids, all of the same age, are going into the media business. So we can all start using each other, and we did, and we still do. You know, (laughs) it's the whole network thing, and you know, and I. So I think when you do, you know, you pick a university, and you know that that is certainly part of it. But I do think when people are sitting at home, whether it be in Irvine or. Seattle or Denver or whatever, and they're like, okay, I want to work at MTV, you just start to figure out, okay, you know, who can I find yeah. on Twitter that works at MTV? Right, I mean, right. 
Yeah. Really, that that would be my advice in this day and age. And I know that that sounds very pie in the sky, but I think if you talk to a lot of my friends who started there 20 plus years ago, and even kids who've been doing it in the last 10 years, a lot of it has to do with that. It, it has to do with mm-hmm. you know, these are the kinds of kids that used to write letters to their favorite celebrities and used to pick up yeah. the phone and call and ask for people. That's that's right. kind of how it works. Okay. Um, okay, before we continue, let's play a second song. Ooh, a second song? Yeah. Um, okay, so my second song is Do They Know It's Christmas? It's Christmas time There's no need to be afraid At Christmas time We let in light And we vanish it I picked that song because um, I uh, I often point to it as my very favorite song, which is kind of a hard and weird thing to do or say. But um, there's so much about that song that encapsulates what I love about music. And also, so it was 1984, which is the year I became a huge music fan. And I still mm-hmm. think 1984 was one of the absolute best years in pop yeah. music. Yeah. And um, I was nine in 1984. And so... Um, there on one record, holy cow, were all of my favorites. It was George, and it was Boy George, and it was U2, and it was Duran Duran, and holy cow, all on yeah. one record. And then, um, as I said, I was a, I was a big news-watching kid. I really was. And mm-hmm. so here was something tied to a news event, and it was topical. And it also, in my nine-year-old, you know, I'm like, oh, they want to do something. They want to help. Mm -hmm. This is so cool. And as I've gotten older, I mean, now I've I've always been a sucker for the charity record. I, you know, I obviously loved We Are the World because I was 10 after that. And know all the, I know, still know all the words too. Oh gosh, it just escaped me though. The Canadian one. The, um, oh yeah. Uh, the Northern Lights. The, uh, yeah, Northern Lights. Yeah. I know all the words, but I can't tell you the title of the song. That's great, right. Jackie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, what's the, oh, uh, Tears Are Not Enough. Tears Are Not Enough. The distance. Only we can make yeah. a difference. Don't you know the tears are not enough? Yeah. Oh my God. So, <laughs> wow. I, love that stuff and it all uh-huh. oh and the one they did during the gulf war the voices the care oh my gosh was that hands that across america oh no that hands across america was uh may 25th 1986 and i actually stood in that line you did i did oh man yes. i was one of the hands across america that is great <laughs> because yes. my mom was brilliant and she's like okay i heard this thing i think you might like it <laughs> yeah that so is there's, genius yeah, yeah great and, and that song too. Oh, love that song. So yeah. it all it all starts with "Do They Know It's Christmas?" And then right. I think it just it sums up so much about me and my love for pop music that Got it. I picked that song. 
It's a great song. It gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. Even yeah. 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 And you probably heard the remix where I think Bowie comes in and does like a message, and I think Paul McCartney does one. It's well, you know, those, those were the B, that was the B side of the 45. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. That was okay. the B side of the 45. Oh, and then, um, well, the Live Aid, when they did it at Live Aid. And, yeah. you know, Bowie was supposed to do the top of the record that Paul yeah. Young did. And yeah. so, um, yeah, so he does it on Live Aid, which is cool. So, so I have, like, five different versions, four, four different versions oh of it, gosh, something like great. that. Yeah, and then my kids, you know, at Christmas time when it comes on yeah. in the car, the best was this past Christmas, like right before Christmas. It came on right as I was about to drop off my 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so I crank it loud, and uh-huh. she's like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah. We drive up to the school. She turns it down. She gets out of the car. I crank it loud and start singing yes, all the window there down. You go. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly the right move. So yeah, cool. That's a favorite. Okay, good. Well, song number two then. Okay, so going back to MTV, did you ever meet? I think I did. You ever meet John Norris? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What's <laughs> so he like? My, well, so my first office actually at MTV was his old office. Oh, <laughs> he was moving out. Oh, he was. A, yeah, he was a really nice guy. You know, I didn't I didn't work directly with him. Um, I didn't get to know him very well. But my favorite John Norris memory and my favorite John Norris story is um, well, I mentioned that I'm a huge George Michael fan. And I know I knew that John and George had been friends going mm. back a while. And um, I'd seen some of the interviews from around the time of Wham and final. And so I knew that they were friendly. And in October of 98, George Michael did a big um, media tour around uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, the Best of George Michael coming out. Mm-hmm. And it was also the first time he did a big media tour after what I refer to as the unfortunate incident in the bathroom uh-huh. in Beverly Hills. Right, right. So, so word had gone out that um, John was actually going to fly to London to interview George. And I was like, okay, that's super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of all this that was going on. And one day, um, it was October of 98, I get in the elevator to go home, and um, John, and I'm standing, and John comes in. And I'm like, oh, hey, John, you know. Mm-hmm. And I look at him, and I was like, oh, so I hear you're going to London to see George. And, of course, like, I'm mm-hmm. totally casual, but, like, inside, I was like, oh, my God. Right, right. So he looks at me, and he's like, oh, no, that changed. George is coming here. Oh. I was Whoa. like, oh, uh, okay. Uh-huh. You're trying to be so cool. Oh, I totally was. So we get mm-hmm. down to the bottom of the Viacom building, and he holds the elevator for me to go out. And I was like, no, you know what? I forgot something up at my desk. And he's mm-hmm. like, uh, okay. So I take the elevator back up to 23, and there was uh, several George Michael fans at MTV News. One of my favorites was a really awesome producer named Mark Doctorow. And uh, Mark, who's a friend to this day, a really awesome guy. And uh, that was one of the things I loved most about working at MTV is that you found kindred spirits. Mm-hmm, you found people mm-hmm. who were just like you. And, right. oh, man, when I made the connection with Mark that we were both these big George Michael fans, it was so cool. Well, I get off the elevator, and I figured, obviously, Mark not only had to know, but he probably was going to have something to do with the show. I ran into Mark's office like a full speed uh-huh. and I stand there and he looks up and he goes it only took you 45 minutes to find out <laughs> wow nice <laughs> that's great so um George came to do a show that was called George Michael TV 
Mm. And so as they're beginning to put, you know, they were um, getting fans to be in the audience. So Mark comes up to me and he's like, okay, you can be in the audience as long as you don't do anything to get yourself thrown out of the building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so John Norris interviewed him, and you can find it online. And when George wow. died, some of my MTV friends and myself included posted on the intros and the outros, you can see me clapping in a red shirt. Really? Oh, yeah. And half the time, though, I'm sitting on my hands because I was just so excited. Yeah. And at the end of the show, um, they were the audience was going one way, and Mark came and grabbed me. And... He tried to make the introduction. It just didn't quite work. He stood me next to him and some other MTV producers, and George stood right in front of me and looked me in the eye and smiled. Oh, wow. And that was as close as I ever got to George, and I am so grateful to this day to Mark for making that happen. And, uh, yeah, George looked me in the eye and smiled. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah. And uh, it just didn't quite work that I got to shake his hand, but that's okay. And uh, and, and I think – yeah, and I think it was John. Like I think it was John and Mark and some other producers and me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was That's like, crazy. Oh. Wow. So I've always uh, so yeah. So that was like I said, I didn't really work or talk too much with John, but um, yeah. that's my one great okay. John Norris experience. <laughs> That's amazing. That's the best. What about uh, Kurt Loader? Yeah, Kurt was super cool. Um, so Kurt's um, assistant uh, was over the cube wall from me. So his name was Michael, and he was a super cool guy. And so, um, you know, so Kurt would kind of be around. And I, you know, I worked in – so MTV News at the time was actually, like, two departments under the news umbrella. It was news and specials and news. News did, you know, Week and Rock, and which became 1515, and, the, you know, the news breaks and that kind of stuff and the packages. That was news. So I was – the specials. I was the half hour, hour long mm. doc stuff, but there obviously was some crossover. So um, I didn't work, you know, like Kurt, he knew who I was and he kind of mm. knew the, the George thing about me and he would say things to me like under, you know, like he would, he knew I was the girl from Orange County. And the reason I know what he knew about me is because when I got hired at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I got hired by Jim Henke, who worked with Kurt at Rolling Stone. And I uh. know Jim called Kurt to check up on me. <laughs> like, who is uh, this girl? So okay. I knew that, but I didn't, I didn't work with him too much. But again, I know okay. lots of folks who did. And okay. Pretty great. So you passed him in the hall. That kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is a weird question. Uh, do either of those guys, do they smell funny? Do they, because the reason I ask is like, do they smoke a lot? Or do they wear a lot of cologne? I'm trying to kind of like enter the third dimension of like actually tangibly being in their presence. Do you remember anything? I don't remember that at all. Okay, okay. No weird right. sense. Okay. Sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. I just wonder if one of them wore a particular kind of cologne or they smoked so heavily that it, like, smelled it constantly. I was just curious. What made you decide to finally leave? Well, first of all, I should ask before you leave, did you meet any any other interactions similar to George Michael? Um, that was the biggie for me. In what I did, I wasn't really in proximity of – the stars and such, you know, okay. they were 24s below me. Like I knew when Britney was in the building and I knew when InSync was in the building, you know, mostly because I could hear the screaming downstairs at, on the street level. Yeah, <laughs> but right. um, no, you know, and it was more the MTV personalities and, you know, the folks that worked there. Um, I do have this really one, I was there during the first, I want to be a VJ. Oh, and yeah. I 
would work late, as most of us would, and I was there really late one night by my in, in my queue by myself. It was like 11 or 12, and I was sitting mm. at my desk, and I look over, and all I see was hair walking by. Mm-hmm. And it was Jesse Camp. Yeah. <laughs> Wow! Like, there goes Jesse's hair. Yeah, so I kind of peeked around and I was like, "Hey, you're still here?" And he's like, "Hey, you're still here?" But I was wow. like, "Yes, you and your hair. I could see your hair." Was he normal to talk to? Was it was it all a put on when he would go on camera, or was he always kind of that guy? Yeah, I think he always seemed like the same guy. He was okay. he was who you saw. And again, I didn't interact with him all that much, but yeah. from what I did, it was what you saw on TV. Okay. Okay. You know who uh, I didn't. You know who I didn't ever meet, and I'm sorry I didn't ever meet. And we have a lot of friends in common, so I hope someday I do get to meet is Dave Holmes. I was, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, he and like I. Such a great guy. Oh, I love him, and I love his writing, and I love his yep. sensibility. I love this book that he wrote last year. I haven't and, read it, but I want to. Oh, it's great! It's great, yeah. and I remember during that time watching it, being like, "Dude, I hope he wins." You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I we have a lot of friends in common. So I hope at some point I do get to meet him. But I and I really yeah I really like him a lot. Okay, Carson Daly. Ever meet him? You know I never met Carson. No, I saw him around. Oh. But okay, okay. Who else would have been there at this time? Sway. Wasn't there the uh, black guy Sway? Yeah. No. I you know Sway was a little bit okay. later than that. Uh, Serena Elchel was there. Yeah, when I was Serena. There. Yes. Yeah, because she would, she voiced some of the shows I worked on, if I remember correctly. Okay. okay. Um, so I, I did work some with Serena. She was great. Okay. You mentioned working long hours. Was that a sort of expected byproduct of this freelance of these freelance gigs? Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't a normal eight to five job. You're going to be, no. you're on call, and you're going to work as long as it takes. Yeah, you know, I was dating somebody who was not living in New York City. So I was mm. effectively single and obviously not married and had no kids. So uh-huh. you, can do, you can do that then. Right, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. You, you can't do that where I am now in my no. life. But no. but then I could. And, yeah, okay. I am, I'm an early bird, and so typical hours were 10 to 7, but I would usually get there 839 just because mm. I function better early. Mm-hmm. So I'd make a Starbucks run around 5 o'clock and then okay. kind of punch it through till 7 um, on a typical day. But particularly as you're getting closer to a show wrapping and that kind of stuff, stay later. And it okay. wasn't unusual to have a lot of people stay in late. Okay. But I think that's um, pretty that's pretty typical in the TV world. I mean, it's yeah. not, into, you know, an unusual. Yeah, it seems that way. Okay. So you transition then? Do you go... Do you get get a job offer with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or do you apply? Um, How does this happen? I meet a boy. Ah. Yeah. yeah well, actually, uh, I, <laughs> I I had already it. known I had already known the boy. Um, <laughs> so okay. I uh, so my husband Dave. Um, so I'm married to a really fantastic guy. His name is Dave Clary, and Dave graduated Syracuse the year before I did, and moved to Cleveland to work at a newspaper. And um, shortly after I moved to Hoboken, I wondered whatever happened to him. Mm. I am one of those people, gosh, Facebook's made things a lot easier for me, but it was always hard to lose me because Uh I like people and I was always um, a very avid letter writer. Okay. And so, um, and I would, I would keep friends and find friends and write letters and spend a lot of time on the phone. 
And uh, so I wondered whatever happened to Dave and found him, and we started writing letters and then started talking on the phone a lot, and this was in my first year in New York City. And um, then we started flying to each other. Mm. And so mm-hmm. this is all that first year. And then I got to January of 99 and decided to move to Cleveland. <laughs> wow. Without a job. I didn't have a job. Oh, and okay. um, I just wanted to go for the boy, which was mm-hmm. not something anybody, including myself, would have ever guessed about me. Yeah, especially um, <laughs> if you have the job that you always dreamed of, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, you okay. know, sometimes your gut just tells you to do something different. So I decided to make the move and told the folks at MTV, then found out and was very nice to find out that um, Dave Cyrulnik, who was the head of MTV News at the time, was helping the was helping Jim Hankey, who became my boss, helping them on a hip-hop exhibit mm. at the time, and... So Dave asked to see me and said, hey, I don't know, you know, I heard you're leaving and um, you're moving to Cleveland. Is this, you know, is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame interesting to you? And I was like, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so he made the introduction. And, you know, that's essentially how the, the business and the world works. And this isn't, yeah. I think, unusual to my story or anybody else's story, but it's, you know, we've got one person who introduces you to another person who introduces you to another person. And I think I, you know, I got lucky that I had this kind of web of cool people. And so, yeah, so I decided to move to Cleveland. And when I made the move to Cleveland, went and met Jim at the Rock Hall. And I did pursue local TV, obviously, because that almost seemed to be the... So Uh I did go to some of the local TV stations and the ABC affiliate, um, you know, and that kind of thing. But the one that kind of panned out is the Rock Hall, and I got they were they were looking for somebody, and um, so I wasn't I wasn't looking long, and I was lucky in that regard. And wow. so yeah, so it's funny my career kind of did this like TV focus, and then TV music together, and then music focus, and then I wound up at the Rock Hall in uh, July of '99. Uh, okay, so let's go to your third song, and then we're gonna go deep on the Rock Hall. Okay, um, third song is Watershed by the Indigo Girls. Gun in my mind, like the back of my hand. The gold in the rainbow, nothing panned out as I planned. They say only. A ghost of someone's tragedy How recklessly my time has been spent They say that it's never too late But you don't, you don't get in here I don't even know that song, I don't think (gasps) Oh, wow Wow I like Indigo Girls and I don't know if I know that song Is it the first is this the first time you're going to be finding a song that you don't know to play? Possibly, <laughs> yeah. Possibly. Wow, cool. Yeah. I'm so happy to be introducing you to one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. So um, I discovered the Indigo Girls in high school, 
as a lot of people do. And um, very quickly, their music became very important to me in high school and college, as it does for a lot of people. It's really the kind of time, you know, it spoke to me. It, it was really the right music at the right time, and it's been really awesome through my life. I've met people who felt the same way. I have seen them live more than anybody else. Really? I've seen them live 16 times. Whoa. And I know when I say I've seen a band 16 times, there are some people that will go, oh, my God, well, I've seen my favorite band 80 times. I get that. Right. I know that. Right. But right. <laughs> I've seen the Indigo Girls 16 times. And what I love about an Indigo Girls show is it's just big sing-along fun. You just yeah. show up and sing the songs, and it's great. So Watershed's my favorite because okay. there's a line in it that says, every tree limb overhead just seems to sit and wait till every step you take becomes a twist of fate. And... I had that written on my bedroom wall, and it's still there, and my bedroom is now my dad's office. Oh, wow. Oh, man. <laughs> and that's the only thing he kept <laughs> that oh, you do that he can see my room. Yeah. And um, that has kind of been a, a guiding principle of my life, and whenever I see them live, that's the one that I hope they play. Okay. I just looked while we were talking, and I have the Indigo Girls Greatest Hits TV, and it's on there. It should be so on I there, have, yeah. I have heard this song. I just wasn't recalling it very quickly. So yeah, it, somewhere it was back on, there into my memory. Yeah, it was on Nomads, Indians, and Saints, which came out in 1990. Um, my all-time favorite Indigo Girls record is Rites of Passage, yeah. and it's one of my top five records of all time. And yeah. so it's funny that it's not on that record, but, um, but dude, that song... song. That's okay. the one I hope they play every time. Good. Okay. Man, they have a way with words. My One of my favorite lyrics of all time is, and it's, maybe it's an obvious one because it's been closer to fine, but it's, um, the darkness has a hunger that's insatiable and the lightness has a call that's hard to hear. Hard to hear. Yeah. That is so true <laughs> to life, you know? It's just, uh, yeah. it's so yeah. easy to go, to give in to the darkness when the, the lightness is there. You just got to work for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty fantastic. Yeah, and I should say my first ever celebrity interview was Amy Ray. I was the really? weekly. Yeah, I was the weekly. Uh, I was the managing editor of a newspaper in this small town in Utah, and her publicist or whatever called. And this was my first job out of college, and I don't really know what I'm doing, as evidenced by the fact that I only worked there a few months. But her publicist called the office and said, "Would you be interested in an interview with Amy Ray?" Because she. They were coming through town to promote... Uh, well, give me the year, I'll give you the record. Yeah, this would have been about... Two, well, it wasn't a record. It was a... Oh. It was a... Um, was it one of like their... Saving, it was a political stance. Political saving thing, some, yeah. like, Indian land or something like oh, that. Oh, sure. Right? Okay. Um, so, 95 and there somewhere? No, this would have been about 2000, oh, okay. 2001. And um, they came and played a show at the University of Utah with Bonnie Raitt. And the oh, two of cool. them, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It's the only time I've either I've seen either one of them, and I love them both. And some band called Indigenous, I think is who they, oh, what they were called. I don't know. Anyway, so I got to interview her. I was like, yeah, of course. And afterwards, I'm like, boy, this job has perks. I had no idea that I, someone would be calling me. You want to interview a rock star? Heck yeah, I want to do that. So anyway, we talked about um, the after effects of Lilith Fair. I thought it was really interesting because she said, that she actually thinks it did more harm than good. Uh, huh. Yeah, which I thought was a really interesting take. Yeah. And if I remember right, this was 17, 18 years ago, but it was something to the effect of, you know, it sort of 
bunching women artists in one movement like that was great at the time, but then it sort of makes it a very makes it makes them just specific to them to the time, not like enduring beyond it. Well, Almost you know like what? You made a grand statement, but then your statement is and done, and we go back to normal, and you know. But you know what else it reminds me of is I don't know if you saw the um, CNN multi-part documentary from a few months ago on the history of comedy. Yeah, and, I've, um, I've it, watched it a couple of times. Yeah, I, I don't remember if it was six or seven episodes or something like that, and it was great and it was really good. Yeah. But what drove me nuts about it was that one of the episodes was about women, mm-hmm. and yeah. it was like. Oh, okay. Can't we mm-hmm. just take all the women and put them into the appropriate episodes? Right. Politics yeah. or history right. or whatever. Why do you yeah. have to take them all out and put them in one? Yeah. So I, I can see how looking back at Lilith, um, I, and I saw Lilith at Jones Beach in '98. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and how that can kind of history can can judge it in in that way. Yeah. I'm glad because it was. I think it was the uh, other than the Indigo Girls. I'm going to take a look at my list right here, but let's see. Sarah McLaughlin, Natalie Merchant, Missy Elliott, and Liz Fair. That's who I saw. Ooh, wow. And it was the only time I saw all of those artists. Then also, obviously, I went because of the Indigo Girls, and um, so I've seen them before and since. But, yeah, like I remember Missy Elliott was really great, and I I loved that it was like that was I got to see her because of it. She was really great. Yeah, very cool. Okay. Well, good. Song number three. Okay. So let's go to the Rock Hall. So you did right. a job doing what at the Rock Hall? Okay. So originally they hired me as a curatorial assistant. And my first job was um, the hip-hop exhibit was coming up. Mm-hmm. And they needed help um, kind of fleshing out the ephemera of the exhibit. So I was not part of the collecting of that one, but um, I did the research and got like magazine covers and Mm. magazine articles and newspaper articles and that kind of stuff Mm. that um, went along with the exhibit. So that was actually the first thing I was hired to do. So how do you go about doing that research? I mean, the internet is around. I don't know if it's, you know, permeated culture, but I don't remember it being as big a deal, but is that what you did? Just start, Yahooing these things? Or microfiche. You... microfiche. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Microfiche. Um, I, would, I went to the public library. Okay. I walked the Rock Hall of walking distance to the Cleveland Public Library. Perfect. Good. <laughs> so okay. In, in, in 99, that's what I did. I'd walk over yeah. to the library and did all that kind of. It, it is really amazing thinking the work that I did at the Rock Hall, the tools that are available now. Mm-hmm. that how much easier it would be. Like, I remember getting in a Susanna Hoff dress that I thought maybe was in the Eternal Flame video, mm-hmm. but I had I had to buy the VHS of the Bengals' greatest hits video no at work, have it sent to work, pop it in the VHS machine at the Rock Hall, forward to the Eternal Flame video, and be like, yep, there it is. Okay, we're that good. That is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and now I could just go into Great. Vivo and be like, yeah. yep, there's yeah, the dress, okay. <laughs> wow. You're charged with um, finding ephemeral, ephemera, as you said, to go right. along with this exhibit. So and, that's is that, the, and here, I guess, you're not a freelancer. You're a salaried employee. Yeah. I Honestly, I can't remember if when they initially mm. hired me, they hired me freelance or I went straight to salary. I can't remember. Okay. I, I very quickly was a salaried employee, but I okay. I don't I don't remember that. The summer okay. of 99 is a 
bit of a blur, the whole, you know, moving to Cleveland thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Which, sure. by the way, Cleveland is awesome. I is really, it? Yes, I really enjoyed living in Cleveland. Um, you know, for a girl who grew up in California, spent a lot of time East Coast, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I sure. thought that there were a lot of cool things. That, and the Rock Hall is such a fantastic place, and I am – so happy and proud of my friends that I know that are still there and all the new people that I have never met. I think they do such good work there, and I'm, I just think it's super cool. Good. Oh, I thought of what – that reminds me of one question I have for you about MTV, and it applies to the Rock Hall, too. Are, are there very many – you, would you still know anyone at MTV that you work with? Like, <laughs> it's, that, a very, it's a very good question. Well, because uh, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would – it seems like it would churn you up and spit you out pretty quickly. I mean, if you were young, I can't imagine, you know, a 45, 50-year-old who's been there 20, 30 years just kind of rolling with the cultural changes. Um, there are some. Oh, and, okay. And God bless them, you know. And, yeah. and I, I, hey, I believe in institutional memory and all that kind of thing. There is one friend of mine who was in the news and specials department when I was there who is still there and totally rocking it and – Wow. Doing great things at MTV, and yeah, because okay. you know I we're Facebook friends, and I follow her on Instagram, and she sure. does really, really great work. And so, yeah, I'm super. It's super cool to see that she's still there. But a lot of my colleagues at MTV, they've gone to other places and are doing great work at other places. And a couple yeah. of them um, have their own production companies that produce oh. programming for MTV. Okay. Wow. So okay. that has yeah that has turned out to be super cool too good okay okay hmm. so um okay so you're so what after how long are you with the rock Hall? i was there let's see i was there from july 99 to june of 02 okay and so just about uh, three years did you ever meet or hang around with yon winner um uh yes i met yon <laughs> okay yes i met yon he came for the opening of the John Lennon exhibit. Okay. Okay. So um, my experience with Jan, um, other than the voice on the other end of the phone, which sometimes mm. he was certainly that, because he was very active in um, our collecting efforts and all that kind of thing. Mm. And I did go to the Rolling Stone offices a few times and um, never did see him when I was there. But um, mm. my one experience with Jan was actually with Jan's mom, <laughs> who was Awesome. Uh, Jan's mom came for the um, opening of the John Lennon exhibit, okay. and um, I hung out with her. Like oh, I nice. was, I was her point person, and she was so cool. And so I took her around the museum. And so there were a couple times, like I sat in the Mystery Train movie with Jan and his mom and Susan Evans and a couple other Rock Hall people. So that was oh. my one. And so really the only thing that Jan ever, ever said to me directly was he looked me in the eye and said, take good care of my mom. Oh, and I okay. was like, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I guess you weren't involved in what goes on to actually nominate people to get into the Hall of Fame, but maybe you were, maybe you saw that process in action. What's your... Okay. What did you see or, or, you know, witness yourself? So all I really – at the time when I was there, the Hall of Fame Foundation was very separate from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. Mm. And mm. now they're pretty married from what I – from my friends that are there at the time, what I can tell just watching the broadcast and that kind of thing. But at the time, there were two very separate things. And the – 
Hall of Fame Foundation, I mean, really existed to do that show and also to help um, struggling musicians, which is part of where the money went. And so, and the nomination and election process was very under wraps. Mm. A couple people in my department were voters, and so yeah. I did get to see the ballot. Oh, but okay. it was at the time when the ballot wasn't public. Now the ballot's public. Mm-hmm. Now, now they do press releases on the ballot, right, right. <laughs> which is super cool, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, so kind of my only insidery thing is uh, a few colleagues of mine who were voters would be like, Jackie, come here, you want to see the ballot? You know, yeah, yeah okay. cool. Okay. You know. So I got to see the ballot. But other than that, um, you know, and we would find out when the press release went out, you know, who the inductees were going to be. And then that was very – so I didn't know before anybody else knew, but as soon as it got announced, we'd have a curatorial meeting. And it's like, okay, you know, Jackie, you get Michael Jackson, and mm. you get this person, and you get – and what do we already have? And, uh-huh. you know, who do we have nothing on? Gene Pitney. We have nothing on Gene Pitney. Okay, Jackie, right. go get something on Gene Pitney. <laughs> okay. And when so, they do that, you go back to the microfiche, and you start researching – Whatever, I mean, magazine so, articles, old yeah, albums, well, at, whatever. At that point, um, well, it depended on who I would get and how much I knew about them. And, you know, at when I would start researching artists and that kind of thing, and I'm not looking specifically for articles and that kind of thing, we had a pretty good library of resource material at the Rock mm-hmm. Hall. So, if like, Gene Pitney is a good example for me because I, <laughs> I was, like, what, 25? I didn't know who yeah. he was. But I'm like, I can learn. This is fine. Yeah. I'll get caught up. So I could start looking stuff up and figuring out, you know, who he was and why he's important and finding the music, obviously, finding mm-hmm. the CDs to listen to and asking around who's got what, what can I hear? And then finding, okay, then I'd have to figure out, you know, what do I want? What, you know, mm-hmm. what are, what are the items that I, that are obviously important to his career? I'm sure the people listening to this really don't care much about Gene Pitney. I should probably. <laughs> <pick> <laughs> no, but this is interesting. Well, you got to do the work. Yeah, well, the the one inductee collection that I am the most proud of that I was very excited about was I did Michael Jackson. Uh, so that, and we already, and Michael Jackson's a good example in that we already had some Michael Jackson things. Hmm. Um, you know, we had a glove. And yeah. um, at the time, I think we had the bad outfit on exhibit. And I, you know, growing up at that time and being a huge Michael fan, um, I was able to write my list without cracking a book. Sure. Like, I just sat there and wrote, these are the 10 things that I want. And that's often when I would approach a manager or whoever I was approaching. I would would give them a wish list. Sometimes they cared. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, Jackie, that's cute. But this is what you're getting, you know? Yeah, yeah. But um, with Michael in particular, the one thing I really wanted that made a – that was very important to me was I wanted the Grammy jacket from 84. Yeah, okay. That was the first – Grammy Awards that I remember watching, and mm-hmm. I have a very vivid memory of sitting in our family room and watching him walk up there and accept that and yeah. getting it and feeling, and then I recorded it, and so yep. on VHS, so I'd watch it over and over and yep. over again, so I wanted that jacket. That was number one on my list because of that particular memory. And, so what and do you, got when you, what now what you know what does someone in your position do? Do you start calling the Jackson estate? Do you well, what who do you, how do you go about getting these things? Well, the first thing you do is find out which of your colleagues already has 
uh, a relationship because okay. you don't want to rewrite, you know, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. So yeah. if there's already a relationship, you kind of figure out who's got the relationship. Okay. So say, you know, we already had a, an existing relationship with the Jackson estate. And so I was put in touch with um, the point woman and she was awesome. And oh. so I was put in touch with her and obviously with an induction, they know that this phone call is coming. If we're yeah. just doing an exhibit out of the blue, then the phone call is out of the blue. You know? yeah, but, right. uh, and I did lots and lots and lots of those. But for an induction, so th- the phone call is anticipated. And so I call up and say, okay, we're really excited. Can I send you a list of what we would really love? And mm-hmm. you let me know what's available and what exists. Because, you know, also stuff gets lost, stuff doesn't exist, things have been sold, um, yeah. they've lost them, you know, what, or they're too precious and they don't want to part with them. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so in Michael's case, they were pretty you know, amenable, and they had suggestions, too, of things that weren't on my list and, you know, and that kind of stuff. And so we just kind of go back and forth and figure out, okay, you know, this will make a great collection. And also, it's part of, in this particular case, it's part of the inductees, right? So it's not like we're doing a whole floor on Michael Jackson, which, of course, would be super cool and make me very happy. Mm -hmm. So we have to be pointed about what we want and what we need. Okay. People are usually, I guess, if you're saying this is for the Rock Hall, they're pretty amenable to working with you did you ever have to go after a piece of and not just for michael but for anybody was there any was there anybody's camp who was adversarial to you and what you were trying oh, to do sure really why would <laughs> oh. anyone do that well you know everybody's got their everybody's got their thing you know some from my experience and again I emphasize this is me doing this 16 17 18 years ago um sure. a couple things I know we're different back then than there are now. There are a lot of people doing what we did then mm-hmm. now because now you have other museums and you have other cultural institutions. And I think just pop culture in general and nostalgia and history and the importance of preserving things like, you know, Jim Morrison's Cub Scout shirt, which mm-hmm. um, was, I believe, one of the original things in the original Rock Hall collection. It was certainly there the entire time. Oh, I always loved that. It was one of my favorite artifacts. Great, great. So I think the importance of preserving stuff like that. Like, I was just looking back at some of my old Rock Hall notes. I'm particularly proud of the fact that I did the first Bon Jovi exhibit at the Rock Hall. Oh, wow. And so here they are getting inducted. It's a particular thrill for me to see them get inducted. And I always say that um, I think one kind of stalwart or one kind of constant, I guess is a better way to put it in my career, is I have always been, uh, with the exception of MTV, where we were all young, but my other jobs, I've always been younger by Mm. about 9 to 15 years as as most most of the other people sitting at the table. Not all of Mm -hmm. them, but most of them. So when we're sitting around talking about who we care about and they're going – you know, Beatles and Stones, I'm going Bon Jovi, Duran Duran. Right. right. So um, Bon Jovi came out of one of those. And so, yeah, I wrote up uh, a wish list. I figured out a way to get the manager on the phone. And I was thinking about that because I brought up the Jim Morrison Cub Scout shirt. One of um, some of the things that the Bon Jovi camp, John Bon Jovi sent us were some of his high school papers. Oh, like his report oh. card and his ID oh. and stuff. Okay. And it was super cool. So of course I'm thinking things like the Blaze of Glory guitar, and yeah. he's like, "How about my high school ID?" I was like, "Hey, that's cool." 
That's cool. So, wow. yeah, so okay. that's how that – now, I don't know. I'm guessing at some point that collection went back. I don't know when, where, and how, but I'm guessing it probably did. Actually, I know it went back because a friend of mine who still works there, um, who I just think is so super cool, I asked her at one point, do you still have that stuff? And she's like, no, I think they needed it back or something. Mm. So they've got probably new stuff for now, and I have to text my friend and ask her what they got. I would love to know what's on exhibit right now for them. Yeah, so when – so. These things come to you on loan, I guess, from the proprietors of whoever. And yeah. you keep them for, I don't know, how long an exhibit lasts, six months or something? And then it well, goes usually, back, or does it go to a hard rock cafe somewhere, or what? <laughs> where does it go? You know, interesting you should say that. That was one of the big, a few of the big competitors at the time sure. when we were doing this, and um, I know that. They, I'm sure they're probably still a player. Actually, I don't know. I wonder how much of a player. I know there are lots of players now, but I wonder yeah. how much of a player they are. But um, the Hard Rock had, you know, my holy grail. One thing I would have loved more than anything else. Which is? The, the George Michael BSA Faith Jacket. Ah, sure. So the one yeah. he lit on fire in the Freedom video yes. is not the yes. actual one? Yeah. Yeah, oh, the Hard Rock had uh, Okay, so uh, you were asking about, um, oh, so loan periods um, for artifacts from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. So um, usually there'd be um, like a one to two year kind of standard loan. I think it would all depend on, you know, what the artist wanted and kind of what they felt. And then at the end of the loan period, we usually go back to them and say, hey, well, one of two things. Hey, can we renew it um, mm -hmm. if we still wanted to keep it on exhibit or give it a rest or whatever? Or if if it was really for a specific something and we don't think we'll ever need it again, we send it back. Yeah. Okay. So um Okay. Yeah, that was that would be what we would what we would okay. do. Would you are you gonna name names who was difficult to work with or whose no. camp was that you're no. not? Oh, come uh, on. Sorry. That's the fun part. <laughs> oh come on. Yeah, but I'm I'm, right. I'm I'm a pretty positive girl. I like to keep okay. it that way. Okay. All right, fine. Okay, so tell me some stories. Did Mick Jagger ever come through? Did you Need anybody? At, I don't know. Other than being inducted in the Hall of Fame, I don't think famous rock stars pass through the Hall of Fame very often. I don't know. I've never been there. Um, I've always wanted. Actually, to. they do because you think about it. Cleveland's a big stop on the yeah. touring circuit, True. and okay. so um, at the time I was there, us curators actually would reach out to all artists coming through. Oh. Um, now they have somebody on staff who that is her job. And I've actually never met her, but we have corresponded, and she's super cool, and I think she's doing a great job at that job. And I love that that's a job now. But okay. when I was there, um, there were us curators. We would, you know, we would see who was coming through. We'd go on to, like, Polestar. Mm -hmm. and, I still um, go to Polestar every month. Yeah, I go to Polestar quite often, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. out there. Yep. So we go into Polestar and just pull up who's coming through Cleveland and then just start contacting um, managers because we wanted anybody – anybody was welcome. So anybody from the top billing star to the person who drove the tour bus mm -hmm. um, to the person who did the catering to the makeup people to the roadies to anybody – we wanted you to come to the museum. And there were a couple tour bus drivers that I actually became friendly with. And I would say, hey, when you're coming to town, give me a call and just tell me how many people you want to come through. And they'd cool. call me and be like, hey, Jackie, I got 12 people. I'm like, great. There's 12 tickets with your name on them. Glad you're nice. coming through. So, yeah, we would get um, a lot of folks. And um, that was one of my most favorite parts of my job. My favorite tour that I did, and I did 
lots of very cool tours and got to meet a lot of really cool people. But my favorite one was Weird Al Yankovic. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, what a nice guy. He seems guy. like a nice guy. Okay, yeah. What a nice guy and what a knowledgeable guy, as you could probably imagine, too. So yeah. taking him through the exhibits and talking about the exhibits, and he was with his wife and his manager, and they were both super cool, too. And I wow. always loved – I loved meeting all the peripheral people, too, because sometimes mm-hmm. if the um, if the group was big enough, two of us curators would take – the tour and one would take the artist and like I would take everybody else. I would take mm-hmm. the managers and the mom and the wife mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. you know, the kid and the whoever. And I loved that. It was really fun. So I would cool. enjoy, um, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I, I don't actually wrote a, I, I did a lot of people, but I did make a little list. Where's my list over here? Um, oh, so all of Aerosmith came once uh, and every curator got somebody different and I got Joey Kramer, the drummer. So nice. that was cool. cool. Um, the guys from Train came through, Uh-oh. and this was right at the beginning. Like, it was like only Meet Virginia was out. Yeah. And um, one of the guys went to my elementary school in Newport Beach. No way. <laughs> so that was really cool. Yeah, we're wow, playing the cool. name game. You're from yeah. where? Wait, what yeah. school did you go to? So That's that was crazy. that was. That was a fun one. Um, Tracy Chapman was really cool. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed um, meeting her and talking with her. So I, that was one of my favorites. And on a real personal fun note, um, I got to do all the Make-A-Wish kids, too. Oh. And I really? loved that. And so one of the – sometimes when, like, a Britney Spears or a Christina Aguilera would come through, the Make-A-Wish Foundation would make a day for these kids. Mm. And um, I just loved that. And I would take them in the back, and I would show them artifacts in the back. And um, not just them, but the dads. Like, I remember one dad in particular was a really big Guns N' Roses fan, and I got to show him a slash hat. Nice. Oh, that's great. So I really enjoyed cool. that. Good. Now, is there, a ton, like, is there a ton of memorabilia in storage, like in the back room at the oh, Rock sure. Okay. Sure. And then yeah. they just hold on to it? Like Slash's hat, I mean, is in a is that in a box somewhere on a shelf? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There, and it's like we need a oh. Slash hat. Does somebody have Slash's hat, yeah. and they go back and find it, and put it out? Well, the is that kind of how it is. Kind of. I mean, it's everything's cataloged. Everything is preserved in you know with the right paper and the right temperature and the whole light. And mm-hmm. the the collections department was really awesome. And actually, the collections manager um, who was there when I was there, he's still there and he's fantastic. And they do such a great job in collections, keeping everything, you know, the way it should be, taking good care of everybody's stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. making sure nothing deteriorates and it's, it's held in the right temperature. But yeah. also a lot of, like, particularly paper artifacts like um, lyrics and all that kind of stuff, you can't yeah. keep it out too long without it deteriorating, so you need to rest it. Yeah, okay. So I never I never thought of the Rock Hall as being also – I mean, I know it's a museum, but I didn't think about it in terms of things – like lyric sheets going there and just living there forever. Okay, well, here's a a big difference since I've left, too, is they've opened up the archives. Mm. And there's a huge, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame archives houses a lot of that kind of stuff, too. So, again, that's more of a, I know that's a lot different than when I was there. And I think it's super cool that, you know, oral histories and um, different people's papers and stuff lives on at the archives. And I believe, like, scholars and different folks can go in and and use the archives 
in a way they need to. And then they have people who just work and maintain the archives. Okay. Okay. Um, I have more questions, but let's do song number four. Song number four. Um, so when you when you listen to people do these things, sometimes it gets frustrating that they're all clustered around a certain time. And I could give you, you know, 200 songs that go from 84 to 93. Yeah, um, but I'm not going to do that. My next song is Springsteen by Eric Church. To this day, when I hear that song, I see you standing there on that lawn. Discount shades, store-bought tan, flip-flops and cut-off jeans. Somewhere between that set and the sun, I'm on fire, I'm born to run. You looked at me and I was done, but we're just getting started. I was singing to you, you were singing to me, I was so alive, never been more free. Fired up my daddy's lighter and we sang, oh, 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 oh. Stayed there till they forced us out and took the long way to your house. I can still hear the sound of you saying don't go. You know that song? Well, I, know, I don't listen to such music. I know of that song. So you don't know that song? I don't know that song. You need to know that song. Okay, okay. So, I've heard of it, I've read about it, but I've never listened to it. I love that song. Really? And so if you go onto my Twitter page, okay. my, my description of who I am, uh-huh. I say, Eric Church is right. Funny how a melody sounds like a memory. Oh, yeah. And that is it. That is it to me. Because I feel you can put on any song, particularly if it was on the chart sometime between 1982 and 1993, Uh and I can tell you something about it. It's going to trigger something. It's going to, you know, and I, so I love that about that song. And I, I discovered that song, so I'm not a huge country fan either there are certain country songs that i really like but i love ann powers do you know who ann powers so i I love yeah i love ann powers and she now writes for npr um she was she wrote for the new york times the only times she writes for npr and so i follow her on facebook right and um a bunch of years ago well 2011 i think is when the song came out she had mentioned it on a facebook post that it was a new favorite song and she thought it was really great so i bought it unheard on iTunes. Oh. Like I, I didn't even look it up. I was like, I'm gambling my 99 cents. If Anne says it's good, it's worth it. Pretty worth much. The risk. Yeah, and, I agree. And from the minute I heard it, and I I just, I really love that song. Cool. Okay. So, sure. And I, I also like discovering new music. I don't sure. like kind of only going to that space in my life. You know, I, I do yeah. believe that... Um, you know, you, the things that you discovered in elementary and junior high and high school, like that kind of sticks with you. And then, yeah. you know, but I, I do believe you can continue to find new stuff that you love. True. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Well, so going back then, I realize this question applies to either one of these jobs and maybe maybe more to MTV. Is there 
Uh, not that everyone's not professional and good at what they do, but is there sort of maybe a party vibe or a party atmosphere going on at either of these places? At either MTV or the Rock Hall? Yeah. Um. I, you no. know, I mean, are they like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, well, I think that, well, you know, I. I'm sure no yeah. one's like doing lines of coke at their. No. Vehicle, but is it like, <laughs> no. uh, you know, I mean, are they going to parties okay. because they've got these really sexy, high-profile jobs, and so there's parties and there's inter-office romance and there's, I mean, there's, those things happen at all jobs, but I just imagine it because it's, you know, in neon, so much bigger and bolder at a job, especially like MTV, that are those kinds of people, is that the kind of culture there? Not my experience. Like, okay. I think that, um, you know, at MTV, we were all younger, so maybe we'd all go, you know, we all didn't have families to go home to. Mm-hmm. So, or most of us didn't. I shouldn't say we all didn't. Most of us didn't. So, um, so maybe we'd go out to a bar, maybe we'd work later, or, um, and I did, you know, go to some shows and stuff with my MTV friends, but yeah. did you get I don't think was, was, um, you just have to make a call to go see whatever show you wanted to see. Hey, no, Jackie usually, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I get offered tickets from, mm. you know, usually the boss didn't want to use them or couldn't yeah. use them. And so somebody knew I liked an artist and offered them to me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then with, when I was at the rock hall, um, Sometimes, you know, when bands would come through and I would tour them and they'd be like, hey, do you want to come to the show tonight? I'd be like, oh, okay, that's cool. So it wasn't, I I still bought more than my share of concert tickets. (laughs) And I still, to this day, buy more than my share. Well, actually, I don't go nearly as much as I'd like to, of course, now. But but I always, I still bought tickets. And so it wasn't all kind of freebies. And I think it, it, it would just, I don't know. I guess I don't think of it as being an unusual. It was just work. It, it was work. Day, yeah. It's the job. It's just the things that you're working on are higher profile and sexier than the guy like me who sells software for a living. You know, you were getting oh, yeah. to do cooler things. All right. So going back then. So what led to you eventually leaving the rock hall? So um, at this point, I have married the cute boy. Uh huh. And um, he got a job that moved us out to San Diego. Okay. So that was – so my husband, Dave, works in the newspaper business. And Mm -hmm. I'm proud to say he still works in the newspaper business. That's a miracle. Yes, it is. And uh, he works here in San Diego at the San Diego Union-Tribune, which is a really great paper. And um, he has been there since we moved. And that's what the the UT brought him out here to San Diego. So while we were – we've been married about a year and – he, we were both kind of like, well, do we want to live the rest of our lives in Cleveland? I don't know. What other opportunities would they be? We listed out some cities we would like to live in. And, yeah, I was feeling the pull of the California sunshine at home uh, a lot stronger than I had expected to feel it. So when he got the job, the job that brought us back here to San Diego, I was really thrilled to be back home. I was really bummed to leave the Rock Hall. Yeah, so bro. that was kind of the big um, – sacrifice in the whole thing and you know sometimes you, you know, he got the job and we got to go somewhere really great and that the big thing that mm-hmm. had to be given up was my really cool job and so yeah. I'm certainly sorry for that but I think you know and then that's part of my career path and when you get married and choices get made and sure. that was the choice that got made and you know yeah there are times I, I get real pangs and kind of like oh really should we have left but yeah 
I love living in San Diego, and I'm really, really happy that I live here. So it was it was good. And then this kind of strange thing happened is that I started to tell folks the rock hall I was going, and one of my colleagues says, you know, the guy who does a lot of our video archive lives in San Diego. And it was like, really? He goes, yeah, let me put you in touch with him. And so um, for the last almost 16 years, I've worked for David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions. And um, Reeling in the Years um, – has grown immensely since um, I started working for us. We're small, but the footprint's big. We're one of the world's largest music archives, and we're both a music and interview archive. Um, Originally, the business was just music, but now it's um, all sorts of interviews, all sorts of cultural icons, um, From uh, and the music goes from the 1920s to today. Okay. So uh, that was, then it was like, hey, look, here's a path for you to stay in -hmm. your field. And that is pretty cool that I have been able to stay in my field here in San Diego. I mean, the mere fact that you and your husband work in jobs in industries that are shriveling up and dying off is miraculous. I mean, speaking of someone who got his degree in print journalism and wanted to be a newspaper man and cover music, and so both you know, horses that I backed in my growing up years have gone away. There's really no, you know, I guess there are jobs. You just have to, you got to find them and be the right person for them and then have the right expectations. But I kind of had to give up on all that because it didn't seem like there was a life to be had in those industries. But you've made it work. It's a miracle. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's been very, very cool. And that's so why. tell me what you're, oh, go ahead. No, I'm saying that's why, you know, it's I I, it, I don't take it for granted that um, both Dave and I are still working in our fields here in San Diego. Yeah. What is your daily, what is your, what do you do every day at Reeling in the Years? Uh, so my job now mostly is archive and research. So we are always getting new footage in. And um, we represent, so we represent um, music libraries around the world, and we also represent TV shows. So like one of my very favorites is the Merv Griffin show. Mm-hmm. So um, we're always getting new stuff in, and when new stuff comes in the door, um, I will usually put it in – well, it'll get put onto a format that I can watch on tape, um, or we've got it digitized, one of the two, and I'll start flipping through to find out, okay, who's on it? Um, if it's an interview, when is it from? What are they talking about? Why is this important? Um, what songs are they doing? What um, is it a hit? It, do we care? What are they talking about? And sometimes I have to go very fast because we have so much stuff that I'm like, okay, all I have time to get is the name of the song and they're promoting an album. Okay, cool, let's move on. Or it is about this movie and okay, cool, let's move on. But sometimes something will kind of grab me and I'll be like, oh, I need to watch this. Mm-hmm. So most recently, um, we uh, we represent Brian Linehan and um, his archive and. Mm. I would be very interested and excited to know if anybody who listens to this remembers or knows um, Brian, particularly any of your Canadian listeners. Um, so he was um, an interviewer in Canada from the mid-70s until the late 90s. And um, his interviews are fantastic. He um, he was a craft guy. So he would do deep – you talk about microfiche, holy cow. Yeah. He would do deep dive research so when he'd have conversations on junkets with actors and actresses or in his studio in Toronto, he would pull out little tidbits and stuff that even the performers and the directors and all that had forgotten. Mm. 
So um, we recently got some more Linehan stuff in, and we got an interview with Robin Williams for Dead Poets Society. Oh, wow. Exactly. Great. And that's wow. one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. So that one makes me stop and watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one, okay. I'm like, oh, I'm going to listen to this one straight through and write it to me. Yeah. You know, I'll take some notes and that kind of stuff. So that is that is what I do every day. So even though I'm kind of not, you know, making the phone calls and finding the archives and, you know, or doing like what I did at the Rock Hall, the cool thing is I can be sitting at my desk at Reeling in the Years, and who knows what's going to pop up on my monitor. Yeah. And that part is really cool. That's incredible. And this company's been around for how long and how many employees are there? Um, okay, so David founded the company in 99, I think is when he, is that the year he gives? I always forget. Um, it's around there. I joined in 02. There are five of us. Oh, that's it. Um, wow. Yeah, we're small. We are small yeah. but mighty. But, um, but you know, international company run out, <laughs> you know, yeah. of a small office. Um, wow. And I I am the only chick at Reeling in the Years. Oh, wow. Nice. And, yeah. and I am the youngest by nine years. And, oh. again, that that's only relevant in the sense that it comes in handy when he gets something that's 80s related and yeah. he can't. You know, and we're all pretty crackerjack researchers, you know, and mm-hmm. particularly David, who owns the company, and me, you know, we're really particularly good at figuring stuff out. But sometimes, you know, an 80s song will pop up and he'll be like, okay, I know Jack, you'll know this. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So, and you're, yeah. you're um, cataloging all of this stuff for what purpose? You're holding on to it for people okay. are coming to you saying, I need a Robin Williams interview. What is, what's the purpose of it all? Right. So our clients are folks making TV shows, documentaries, film projects, advertising, okay. whatever. So somebody's making, you know, I mentioned the CNN uh, yeah. comedy documentary. Like, so we had footage in that. So okay. they'll come to us, and Robin Williams is actually a good example when it comes to that, too, mm-hmm. and say, okay, what all do you have? Sometimes people are looking for something very specific. Sometimes they're looking for something really general, like, we're doing a show on women's lib. Go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Be like, mm-hmm. um, okay. Right. <laughs> So we start, you know, we've got, you know, Merv stuff from the 60s and David Frost stuff from the 70s. And we can start to, well, here's some Helen Gurley Brown and, mm-hmm. you know, start to kind of, so um, we'll send all that stuff out and then the researchers will look through and the producers and figure out what fits their project um, and we'll license those chunks. Well, that's, uh, and you're able, you between you and your husband, you're able to make a living. You raise two kids. Yes, we do. These jobs living in San Diego. Yes, yes, we do. Okay, and um, I forgive me if this is too personal a question, but I mean, because of these industries, as I mentioned, being where they are, are you guys? Do you feel like you've got stable jobs for a while? Well, for now. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think. Um, yeah, you know, I I think in any field, honestly, you you. you know I, I don't know. I yeah. yeah I mean, I. I don't know if I would feel any better if I was a doctor or a nurse or sure. a teacher or, you know, so I can't really, st- you know, I, I mean, if you look back, so Dave's worked at the UT for um, the past 16 years and there have been several different owners and there's been, and the staff is a quarter of the size that it was when he started yeah. there. So, um, yeah, you look at that and there were some, you know, some white knuckle times and then, you know, and, and, I work for a small company, and you never know that has good years and bad years, too. Things are great now, and that is awesome, and I'm right. so glad for that. But you, you, you just you never know. So right. 
and you know we live in a very expensive area mm-hmm. yeah. and uh i and it it is not lost on me how lucky I am to live here and how grateful I am to live here and that's why I think it's very much a part of you know i i'm 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 we're doing this work and we're here, and I'm really glad that we're here good and if it were to all i mean at this point you've you know you've got such a you've got so many years of experience i i i don't know if if something were to happen do you think you would fall back into television production at this point if well, you had to the thing is is even if something weren't to happen like i would be happy to grow from this i mean i think in this day and age you can do more than one thing at once if that makes yeah, any sense true. so even though you know i i enjoy my work at Berlin in the years but man there's so much other kinds of stuff I would love to do that I would love to find, you know, I'd love to do some writing. I'd love to do more yeah. TV work, um, both on camera and off production work or being mm-hmm. on camera or, you know, do more archive work. So I think that um, I I always kind of have my ear out. So it's not, you know, belittling or putting aside my current job, but, no. you know, I've uh, you know, much like how you have your career and you're doing this great podcast, you know, I mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind layering some stuff on top of sure. of what I do, and um and I think it, particularly as my kids are getting older and it'll free up a little more time, but and I try to exercise some of you know my writing muscles and all that kind of stuff. So right. I don't know. I just okay. I have loved that my career's kind of done these kind of funky twists and turns, and I am so open. To more funky twists and turns. Well, and it's amazing that you've managed to stay on this path basically the full time and um, make it work for yourself. And carbs, I mean, you're obviously a, a value wherever you've worked because people will continue to go to bat for you to the next place. And yeah, that's huge. Pretty cool. So, I'm yeah. pretty cool. Good for you. Uh, okay, well, cool. I thought it would be really fascinating to have a. a actual very specific conversation with somebody who because the whole point of this podcast is normally how rock stars make a living in music but i thought it'd be interesting to see how a normal person makes a living in music especially in this day and age you know that's awesome and i'm happy to be your normal person well (laughs) (laughs) me too thank you for being my normal person um okay so then uh let's uh do you have like a favorite story that you haven't told me is there one memory that's so crystal that's so much bigger and better than every other memory well i guess the one you want one more great rock hall story yeah i do okay so my last great rock hall story that i'll give you and i'm lucky i've got lots of them Uh you know some people sometimes say to me you should write a book and i'm like hey you know maybe i will write Uh a book because i would enjoy it (laughs) but um so one last great rock hall story that I'll tell you is that um, one of my favorite people that I got to meet was um, Don Taylor of Duran Duran. Oh, yes. So I said, yes. I'd sit around at these desks and we'd all toss out, you know, I want to do the Beatles, I want to do the Stones, and I sat there, I want to do Duran Duran. Heck yeah. And they looked at me and they went, Jackie, you go do Duran Duran. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, so, fine, I will. Yeah, I'm like, I am on that. Thank you. Yeah, just watch so me. This was 2001, uh-huh. and um, John was not currently with the band. So uh-huh. I had to figure out how to get all the different guys because they weren't all in the same place. Uh-huh. So in figuring that out, I got in touch with John Taylor. 
who invited me to come check out his stuff in his closet in his apartment in L.A. No way. I was like, awesome. What? Okay. You so, go to his um, private residence in uh, his closet? It, it was his office. Okay. And it had been his. Uh, it had been a residence of his, but it was currently his office, and he kept a bunch of stuff in there. So I fly to L.A. and um, I go to the place, and the door opens, and it was the only time in my professional life that uh-huh. I had to grab the door jam <laughs> as uh-huh. he's sitting in the middle with his leg propped up on his knee, and he uh-huh. is just as beautiful in real life as he oh, is on TV. Yeah. And I literally had to grab the door to him. I was like, hi, John Taylor. Hi, John Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, um, so with his um, right-hand woman, Patty, who was really fantastic, who does a lot of artwork still and still works with him, but she was really great. And so Patty, John, and I went down and had um, lunch together. And so in doing this, I was explaining what we were wanting. We wanted to do the first Duran exhibit and I'm excited to see what you have. And um, mentioned as we were eating in, you know, in context of all this, that my boss was Jim Uh Hankey. And he looks at me and he goes, Jim Uh Hankey? And I was like, yeah, why? Well, he wasn't totally thrilled because – Jim wrote the cover story on Duran Duran and the Rolling in Rolling Stone that began. That. Well, do you remember the first line? No, but I will when you tell me. Simon Le Bon wears blue underpants. Oh, yes, yes. That's so right. the band wasn't thrilled with that, which yeah. I get. So I kind of had to do this. Okay, well, Jim's a really cool guy, and we. Yeah. Really, you know, and, you know, it was great. They actually totally made friends over email, and it was totally sure. fine, you know, and it was never, uh-huh. I don't think the collection was ever in jeopardy. But it was funny. It was like, oh, did I not already bring that up? And that then we, is hilarious. after lunch, we, um, he pulled out all these, like, scrapbook pages that he and his dad had done the scrapbook of, like, handwritten set lists from the early days and oh, um, all different kind of, so it was very cool to go through all this stuff and to flag and and to and it was the first time you know somebody had said to him like this stuff yeah. means a lot to fans matter really cool yeah, yeah. so that yeah. was one of my very favorite that's great collecting hopefully one day the rock hall will figure it out and put Duran Duran in the hall of fame where they belong Right. You know, isn't that one of the best parlor games ever is to sit around with people and oh. be like, this is who I think should be in. Absolutely. This is who I think Absolutely. should be in. Yes. Yeah. And yes. I think, you know, and and they played at the Rock Hall, too, I'm sure. You know, it's yeah. everybody. But, you know, at the top of my list for a very long time has been Duran Duran. Absolutely. That's, it, if, that's the one. I mean, I a lot of things about Rock Hall and Jan Winter and Rolling Stone really get in my craw. But the biggest one of all is just the – the uh, ignorance, willful ignorance around 80s alternative British rock. All those bands. The, yeah. You know, The well, Cure and the Depeche Modes. Thankfully, Depeche Mode were finally on the thing this last time. But sure. They deserve to be in there. These, are the, these, are, these bands are the rolling stones of their genre, and their genre is as valuable as rap or any other genre that's starting to get recognized to be in there. I'm not saying... You know, not everybody, maybe not the psychedelic furs, but the big wigs, the new orders, the Smiths. Sure. These bands well, belong in there. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, and I, I think it's, um, 
yeah, it's it, it there. It, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation the other day that I think um, it has a lot to do with the, the voters and yeah. turning over the voting population. I think, and then also, you know, when the Rock Hall started in '86 and they were inducting people, that the pool of people was small, and now yeah. rock and roll and the very broad, wonderful definitions of rock and roll is so huge. How do you? How do you keep doing this? Um, yeah. One thing I really like that they did is they did have, they created a category for songs this year. Yeah, that's so I do like that they did that because to me it really shows that they are trying, they're trying to figure out how to to get everybody that deserves in some way to be recognized, yeah. recognized. But yeah, and I think everybody can sit around and, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, quarterback it and all that kind of thing. But cool. I think for me, the the one band I've been saying for years would be at the top of my list. It would be Duran Duran, and um, not just for the musical contribution, but for the video contribution. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's they that's why I yep. that's why they're number one on my list. Yeah, my feeling on the Rock Hall has always been, and it seems like a really easy solution. All this to me is you just have separate wings, and you have no. the R and B wing. <laughs> And the folk wing, and the alternative wing, and the rap wing, and the whatever, you know. And then you showcase, and again, I've never been there, so I don't, you know, maybe that's, you you'd have go? to tear the building down and rebuild it or right. something. But, but then, you, then you have, you know, these are, the, these are the people who made the 80s alternative wing of the Hall of Fame, you know. Cause it, and then you, it spreads it out. You can have the heavy metal wing. There should be right, a heavy but, metal wing. Right, but see, I would respectfully disagree, though, because I oh, think really? what's – Yes, because I think some of the wonderful power of rock and roll are the intersections of things. It's mm. where the R&B and the pop cross. It's where, sure. you know, sure. rap and rock cross. So I think – and I think when mm. you think of some of these bands, you talk about the alternative bands like the Smiths or Depeche Mode or the Cure or that kind of thing – Yes, there's obviously a very, you know, they all share that kind of alternative Brit, but, you know, there are other influences that you throw in there. Or I even think of, like, the soul and funk influences of bands like Duran Duran and George's, George Michael's soul influences. So that's, I think, part of why I love rock and roll so much. I mean, you mentioned when I brought up Springsteen by Eric Church, the first thing you said was, I don't know a lot about country. Yeah, and to yeah. me, there's a lot of, pop in that song yeah i believe it. a lot of pop in that song and then you know yes you could people have done whole dissertations on country and country pop and you know going back to the george jones type of country and it's not really country and all that kind of thing but i love that muddy place that's Mm -hmm. what i love about rock Mm -hmm. and roll interesting okay that's a cool uh i've never had anyone uh argue with me on that topic and i like the stance that you take that's a good defense okay good good okay well, um, this was fun. Thank you for talking with me. I hope people hearing this have a sense of what it must have been like to work in these places, pursue this career, make it last all this time. It couldn't have been easy, but you met, you managed to make it happen. I thought that'd be a really interesting story to tell. So thank well, you for doing this with me. Well, thanks for having me. Sure. Tell us the fifth song. What song are we going to go out on? In Your Eyes, Peter Gabriel. Oh, of course. Yes. Of course. <laughs> Good one. Good one. Yeah. Why specifically? Uh, well, the use of music in movies and TV has obviously been important to me. I've kind of made that the intersection of my career and where where my career intersects. And I love that. And that's one of my first and my favorite 
memories of the use of a song in a movie. And so, and, and say, say anything and Dirty Dancing are my two all time favorite movies. So, <laughs> oh, goodness. Two, two movies that both incorporate music, um, in wonderful ways. And so, uh, but, but, that particular song, In Your Eyes, has always had a real special place in my heart. Not just because it's Say Anything, but that's a high school song for me. And sure. that's, boy, I do love that song. Yeah. I love that song, too. I had the, bought the tape or whatever when it first came out. So I was a fan of it before it was ever even in Say Anything. And I'm glad that it, I gave it its new lease on life or whatever. Right. It well, is yeah. The iconic song it is because of that movie. Right. So, so is one of my all-time favorite records, but I didn't own so until after Say Anything. And um, Dave and I went to see Peter Gabriel at the Hollywood Bowl do so all the way uh, through. Yeah, I saw and, him here at Red Rocks on that same tour. Oh, yeah. so cool. Well, yeah. right before In Your Eyes we see a man run on stage with a boombox and put it down. And it was after he ran off that we realized it was John Cusack. No, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was so cool. No way. They kept cutting to him on the big screen, and you could see him standing off stage with this, like, dreamy look on his face. I was wow. like, oh, my gosh, it was so cool. Wow. Man, I, 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 that's the benefit of going to shows in Southern California instead of Denver, where no, no, nothing like that ever happens. Oh, you know well, you, you never know. But <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Cool. Well, good. Well, thanks for talking with me, Jackie. This was fun. All right. Thanks, John. So soon we'll be 